Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. Well, the show hit a modern-day milestone this last couple of weeks. We got over 1,000 likes on Facebook, and I certainly appreciate that. We had over 2,500 downloads in March alone. So this show is being really, really well-received, and I truly appreciate everybody who's been listening and communicating with me. Well, you know, it's been 180 years since the Texas Revolution, and during this March and April time frame, I've been covering the events of the Revolution. In this episode, we're going to discuss the movement of the Texas Army as it approached that fateful meeting at San Jacinto on April 21st, 1836. So let's go back 180 years to March and April 1836 and get wise about Texas. The Alamo fell on March 6th, 1836, and on March 27th, Fannin and his men were massacred at Goliad. Sam Houston had arrived at Gonzales between those two events on March 11th to take command of the Army. Upon learning of the fall of the Alamo from Alamo survivor Susanna Dickinson about March 13th, Houston ordered an immediate retreat and ordered the citizens to accompany the Army in heading for the Colorado River. He also ordered Fannin to abandon Goliad, and, and that order was blatantly disobeyed by Fannin. If Houston could take his roughly 375 men, though, and hook up with Fannin's 400 men, Houston thought that the Mexican army could be defeated on the Colorado River. Well, when Houston called for the retreat, the citizens dropped what they were doing and fled. The army assembled and began marching east on the night of March the 13th. The army marched for four days and reached Burnham's Crossing on the Colorado River on March 17th. Now, Burnham's Crossing, or Burnham's Ferry as it's sometimes called, was founded in 1824 by a man named Jesse Burnham. The crossing on the Colorado was on the old Wabahia Road, and Burnham had established a trading post in addition to his ferry operation. His settlement, Burnham's Crossing, was the northernmost settlement on the Colorado River of all the Texas settlements. Burnham himself had fought in the War of 1812 and had come down with some sort of sickness during that time. Therefore, he traveled to Texas for the better weather, but it was still a struggle. If you read his first-hand accounts of his life, he talks about it being too feeble to even hunt. At one point, though, his kids were so hungry that he determined to pull himself up and try to hunt some deer. Luckily, right when he walked out of his cabin, he ended up killing two deer uh, steps away from his cabin, so he was certainly a fortunate hunter, if not a very able one. He was also engaged in the first Indian fight of Austin's colony, which was a battle against some Karankwa Indians at a place called Skull Creek. Another funny story he recalls is though is of those two deer that he killed. His wife tried to make his son a shirt from the deer hide, but she didn't have enough to make two sleeves for the shirt. So the little kid ran around in a one-sleeve shirt until they could get another hide to make the other sleeve. Burnham had a tough life on the Colorado, but Houston brought the army to Burnham's Crossing and decided that being that far north was not the best plan because there were a lot of opportunities below Burnham's for the Mexican army to cross the river and plunge headlong into the Texian settlements. So Houston moved the army down the river to another crossing called Beeson's. Benjamin Beeson had built uh, not only a ferry crossing, but some commercial enterprise and an inn at the site of this crossing on the Colorado. Eventually, some settlers came and built their houses near there, and this crossing, Beeson's, was basically the western edge of the Texian settlements. Houston, and more importantly, Houston's troops, believed that he would make a stand at this spot because it was the gateway, really, to the Texian settlements. 
As the army regrouped, men from around the settlements arrived to join the fighting, and the ranks grew to about 1,400 while they were at Beeson's. Another stroke of good luck happened while the army was camped at Beeson's, and it happened up in the northern, mostly unexplored part of Texas, and that was rain. As it started to rain up north, the Colorado steadily rose, which would make it much harder for the Mexican army to advance. Now, before we move on, I want to relay a little story about the Beeson family. While I was researching this episode, I saw that Benjamin Beeson's estate was referenced in an 1837 edition of the Houston Telegraph newspaper. And by the way, that's what I'm doing when I'm researching these episodes. I'm reading the newspaper from 1837, among other things. I looked it up, and the estate administrators indeed put a notice in the paper calling on the debtors and creditors of Benjamin Beeson to get their claims in so that the estate administrators could wind up Mr. Beeson's affairs. But interestingly, right below the notice for Benjamin Beeson is the same type of notice for Collins Beeson. Now, Collins Beeson was Benjamin Beeson's sons, one of them. Another reference that I looked at indicates that Collins Beeson was killed in an Indian fight on September 21, 1836, but there isn't a mention of his father being involved. So despite the fact that their estate notices were on the same day in the same edition of the Houston Telegraph, the Indian fight only indicates that Collins Beeson was killed. So I'm curious if Benjamin Beeson participated in that fight in any way, and if so, did he die there or did he die later? So I'd like some curious listeners to please take that research project on, and let's close the circle on the owner of this important stop for the Texian army as they journey towards San Jacinto. So let's go back to Beeson's Crossing right quick. Now the Mexican general Ramirez y Sesma arrived on the west side of the river and camped with several hundred men within sight of Beeson's Crossing. Now Houston's troops were ready to fight, but Houston was biding his time and he was waiting on Fannin to show up from La Bahia. Well, Houston finally heard that Fannin had been captured and he heard it on about March 23rd, and it really threw him for a loop. He actually wrote a letter to Secretary of War Thomas Rusk after he learned of Fannin's capture. He criticized Fannin, uh, saying that he should, have re- should not have retreated in broad daylight and referred to Fannin as, quote, an ill-fated man, close quote. But he also wrote something else very interesting. Houston wrote that with Fannin's defeat, Houston had, quote, found the darkest hours of my past life. Close quote. Now, some of you may know that Sam Houston had a 10-day marriage to a lady in Tennessee that broke up for reasons that Sam Houston would never discuss his whole life, but he kind of went crazy and ran off to live with the Cherokees and drink for a few years. And I wonder if he wasn't referencing that in that letter to Fannin, and I also wonder if he wasn't fairly depressed when he found that Fannin's defeat was going to deprive him of, of those reinforcements. Anyway, Houston decided at that point to retreat again east from the Colorado, so he moved the army on a two-day march to the capital of the colony, San Felipe de Austin, but he only stopped for one night. He then ordered a further retreat up the Brazos to the Bernardo Plantation, which belonged to Jared Gross, although it was being run by Jared's son, Leonard Gross, at the time. Now, I want to mention something about the evacuation of San Felipe de Austin, the The capital of Austin's colony was a very prosperous and active place, as you might imagine. Santa Ana was heading straight forward to try to get the rebellious Texas government. So Houston ordered the town evacuated and burned. Now, this was not very popular among the residents, as you might expect. 
In fact, two of the companies of the Texan Army refused to retreat any further. One company remained at the San Felipe Crossing of the Brazos to guard it, and another company went on their own down to Fort Bend, which is now Richmond, Texas, where there was another crossing on the Brazos, and they were going to guard that crossing. And also, in an earlier episode of Wise About Texas, I mentioned to you that Angelina Eberly was the last person out of town, and she begged Captain Mosley Baker not to burn San Felipe. Well, Baker carried out Houston's order, but then he harshly criticized Houston and, and told Houston that if, if Houston had had Miss Eberly's spirit, the Mexican army would never have taken San Felipe. So that was quite the controversial action that Houston took. Well, the army arrived at Gross's plantation about March the 30th. Now, Jared Gross had founded the Bernardo Plantation in 1822. He had actually loaded dozens of wagons with all his stuff from Alabama and took it all to Texas. He basically moved an entire plantation operation from Alabama to Texas. By 1836, as I mentioned, his son Leonard was running the plantation, and the Bernardo Plantation was really a crossroads for almost all the travelers in that part of Texas. And here, Houston decided that he would camp and train his men in basic military tactics because, remember, the Texian army was nothing if not undisciplined. And he thought this would be a good opportunity. So let's talk about, for a minute, the undisciplined Texian army. Now, the folks who settled Texas, as you might imagine, were fiercely independent. They wanted their home, they wanted their farm, their animals, and they wanted to raise their families their own way and not be bothered by a bunch of rules and big government, and that's still sort of the spirit of Texas today. These people had left settled and civilized lives in the United States to settle in a foreign country with very uncertain prospects. They sought out a very hard existence in order to have their liberty and prosperity. These were tough, independent-minded people. The idea of a regular full-time army was absolutely repugnant to people like the Texian settlers, And uh, one of my favorite and probably most accurate descriptions of the Texian army was simply that it was an armed mob. And that's about what it was. You'll remember from an earlier episode that after the capture of Behar in December 1835, most of the fighters, most of the Texian army just left and went home. Uh, The Texian sentiment was that members of the regular army were not free men. They They were described as, quote, hirelings. And this was a problem for Texas because Mexico darn sure had a regular army, and they were trained. Uh, William Barrett Travis, among other early Texian heroes, advocated for a regular army. He once pointed out, he wrote that, quote, a mob can do wonders in a sudden burst of patriotism, close quote. But he went on to, to state that it wouldn't do very well if there was a long military campaign, and that proved to be true with the Texians. And there was even one of the recruiting pamphlets in 1835 referred to the Mexican army as, quote, hirelings of a tyrant, close quote. And another Texian soldier uh, probably put it best when he was describing his fellow soldiers. He said, we are all captains and have our views. Well, a typical uh, example of the attitude of the Texian volunteers is uh, found in an account of a gentleman named Thomas Rabb. He was a settler on the Colorado River, and his wife, Mary Rabb, kept a journal. Um, When the army was at the Colorado, Thomas Rabb brought a company of men from Egypt, which is not nearly as biblical as it sounds. Egypt was a town uh, southwest of Houston near the present-day town of East Bernard. It was on the Colorado River back then. 
Now, Rab's company ended up fighting at San Jacinto, but it wasn't commanded by Rab. It was commanded by a gentleman named Hurd. Rab was listed as the commander until March 26th, 1836, which is the exact date that Houston began retreating from the Colorado. And the story, at least according to his wife, of how Rab came to vacate his command uh, gives us a clue to the attitude that we've been discussing. According to his wife, Rab kept telling Sam Houston to his face that he better fight the Mexican army at the Colorado and not let them make any more headway toward the Texian settlements. So he was vehement that we needed to stop the Mexican army at the Colorado. Well, Rab's wife describes Houston in writing as afraid to fight. Rab finally threatened Houston that he better not let the Mexicans cross the Colorado or Rab would just release the men in his company and everybody would leave and Rab would too. And again, according to Rab's wife, Houston told Rab that the Colorado River would run red with blood before Houston would let the Mexican army cross. Well, of course, the Mexican army did start to cross and Houston immediately started to retreat. So Rab did exactly what he said. He released his company and the men took off and Rab did too. Um, that memoir, by the way, of Mary Rab was discovered in a desk drawer in 1929. It's fairly interesting. Well, the Colorado River was a very significant line for the Texians. The vast majority of settlement was east of the Colorado, and if the Mexican army had crossed the Colorado, it would have a direct shot at all the settlements. So if you read the accounts of the time, well, Thomas Rab's opinions were re- repeated by many of his men. That is, that they would just leave the army if Houston wouldn't fight the Mexicans on the Colorado. And Houston was already a controversial figure in Texas, and the independent-minded frontiersmen uh, were not inclined to follow him no matter what. Uh, He was going to have to keep this group together by force of will. Well, Houston Houston did have military training and decided not to engage on the Colorado, and uh, many of the companies of men just left. So one firsthand account of that time alleges that there were only about 400 men when Houston left the Colorado on that retreat, and only a few men left. That's what the guy wrote, only a few men left when they reached the Brazos. Now, the real numbers are in dispute. We'll never know for sure. Uh, I doubt it's even possible to know how many people were in that army at any one time. Um, It is possible to say that Houston reached the Brazos with fewer men than he left the Colorado with. Uh, And lucky for Houston, it was taking several days for volunteers from East Texas to arrive at the army. So he was replenishing his ranks, even as many men were leaving the ranks. So it must have been quite the busy traffic time on the prairies of Texas. Now, the desertions were a problem for Houston. He was one of the few Texian leaders with actual military experience, and he knew that the, the minimum level of training it would take to defeat an army like that of Mexico. But that's not really the whole story, that, that belief that they needed to be trained. There's more to it. One of the great discussions in Texas history circles is the nature of Houston's retreat. That is the question of whether he was really trying to grow the army and prepare them to fight, or was his intention to get them to the Sabine River, chased by the Mexican army, and engage the United States forces that were in Natchitoches, Louisiana? Well, I'm not sure we can ever really answer that question, but it is very fun to discuss it. In one source, which was purportedly written by a Texian soldier and an aide to Houston, that soldier, whose name was Robert Coleman, quotes Houston as saying that he intended to retreat to the Redlands, which meant, of course, western Louisiana, uh, or deep east Texas. The last president of the Republic of Texas, Dr. Anson Jones, who was not a friend of Houston, uh, especially after the Texas annexation drama we discussed in the prior episode of Wise About Texas, 
He also had some comments to make about Houston's plan. He stated that Houston wanted to retreat far enough to Louisiana that General Edmund Gaines would engage the Mexican army with U.S. troops. Now, frankly, that made a lot of sense. You'd stretch the Mexican supply lines to their absolute uh, limit and would likely pick up reinforcements for your own army as it marched through the Texas settlements. But you should also consider that Houston's communicated intentions might have depended on who he was talking to, because there's another Texian soldier, J.H. Kirkendall, who quotes Houston as saying, and here's the quote, My friends, I am told that evil disposed persons have reported that I'm going to march you to the Redlands. That is false. I'm going to march you into the Brazos Bottom near Grosses to a position where you can whip the enemy 10 to 1, close quote. In another dispatch, to the general population of Texas, Houston said this, quote, My intention has never been to cross the Brazos, close quote. Now that dispatch was quoted in newspapers all over the United States, and there seemed to be a general feeling among the population that Houston was about to confront Santa Ana. But there's also some very interesting and probably the most convincing evidence of Houston's intention is what Houston himself said. Now, Dr. Stephen Harden, who is a great Texas historian and a professor at McMurray University in Abilene, found a speech that Sam Houston gave, and he gave it in Houston, coincidentally, in 1845. And in that speech, Dr. Harden uh, wrote about the speech, and in the speech, Houston told the crowd that he was, quote, determined to retreat and get as near to Andrew Jackson and the old flag as I could, close quote. So there you go. Houston himself in 1845 admitted that he wanted to make it to Louisiana and get help from the U.S. forces. But just in case that didn't work, training continued at Gross's plantation, and the camp was not exactly luxurious. One account described it as being located in a ravine that looked like it had once been a riverbed, which is highly possible if you know anything about the Brazos River. It changes course fairly frequently. The camp was inundated with water. Some of the soldiers actually stood their guard duty in knee-deep water. Uh, as you might imagine, sickness was rampant. Food was short. One of the officers um, noted that there were six, 300 sick men on April the 9th. But the Army managed to, to make it through and, and drill and train. Uh, and Houston's choice to stop there at Gross's Plantation proved to be a good one for a few reasons. First... He was, uh, while he was at San Felipe, Houston heard that the steamboat Yellowstone was at Gross's loading cotton. So Houston pressed that boat into service to get the army across the Brazos River a lot faster than the Mexican army would be able to. And during the camp at Gross's, two cannon arrived, the famous Twin Sisters, the gift of the citizens of Cincinnati, Ohio. And those fabled cannon were the uh, Texians' only artillery. And we're going to do an episode um, in the future about the location of the Twin Sisters because that's one of the great mysteries of Texas history. The Grosses also, while the Texian Army was camped there, were able to supply the Army with a lot of food and other supplies to get the Army back into fighting shape. Well, about April the 10th, while at Grosses, Houston heard that Santa Ana had crossed the Brazos and was heading straight toward Harrisburg. And this probably gave him the impetus to go ahead and cross the river. So he got the steamboat Yellowstone fired up and began to cross. Once across the river, when the Army had gotten it took them more than one day to cross, but once they'd gotten the cannons, they got their supplies, there was another arrival that occurred that would have quite the impact on Texas. Up from Harrisburg with other U.S. volunteers walked Mirabu Bonaparte Lamar and joined the Texan Army at Gross's Plantation. He would go on, of course, to be a 
sworn enemy of Sam Houston, as well as the second president of the Republic of Texas. But it all started on the banks of the Brazos near present-day Hempstead, Texas, when he joined the Army. In the meantime, as I've discussed in some earlier episodes of this podcast, the provisional government had fled to Harrisburg. Santa Ana, who had been camped in Fort Bend, learned that fact about the same time as Houston was crossing the river at Gross's. So Santa Ana made his eventually fateful decision to take a small part of the army personally toward Harrisburg and try to capture the government. Then he thought he would just defeat what he considered uh, was Houston's ragtag band of rebels. Houston, in the meantime, marched the army to a nearby plantation called Donahoe's. Now, earlier I discussed the debate about whether Houston was regrouping the army intending to fight Santa Ana or whether he was actually retreating to the United States. Well, let me mention another little side story at this point. The Secretary of State of the Provisional Government of Texas was a man named Samuel Carson. In March of 1836, Carson had met with U.S. General Edmund Gaines in Natchitoches, Louisiana, in an attempt to convince the U.S. Army to help the Texians, and the way he did it was he said that the Indians were helping the Mexican army uh, because the U.S. had a policy that if the Indians were involved, that would be one of the reasons for them to go on an excursion uh, against the opposing force. He later wrote to Sam Houston and assured Houston that Houston should continue to retreat all the way to the Sabine River if necessary, and if he did, that volunteers with the US, from the U.S. would come run into his aid. Now, Houston learned this about the time he left Grosses, so Houston had a real problem. If he made it to the Sabine, he would get reinforcements, but if he continued the retreat, he might not have an army left to reinforce. So he he faced quite the catch-22. In any event, he continued the retreat. On the morning of April 16th, the army was camped on Samuel McCarley's plantation just west of present-day Tomball, Texas. As they began their march the army would face its ultimate and literal turning point. About three miles from that camp, the road forked. The left fork in the road would lead the army toward Nacogdoches and eventually the Sabine River in Louisiana, where presumably, but of course the army didn't know this, only Houston knew it, that the Americans would reinforce them. The right fork of that road would lead toward Harrisburg and the final battle of the Mexican army. So off they went on their march. Now, the homestead of Abraham Roberts was where that road forked. Roberts Plantation would later become a community known as New Kentucky. It's just a couple of miles west of Tomball. And everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about the fork in the road. Jesse Billingsley, who was one of the officers, later stated that the officers had gathered and signed an agreement that no matter what Houston's orders were, that they would take their men on the right fork toward Santa Ana. Sidney Sherman later wrote that Rusk had issued an order to Houston to take the right fork, and that's why they turned. Yet another popular story is that Houston was at the rear of the column. Now, maybe he was doing that on purpose, and the army decided on their own to take the right fork. Now, no doubt, if that army were left to their own devices, they would have turned right for the fight. A couple of officers felt that Houston chose the Harrisburg Road based on Burnett and Rusk's orders. Houston later flatly denied that and claimed that he had planned all along to take the right fork. Uh, Houston had, though, sent orders ahead to East Texas calling for volunteers from that area to stop their approach to the Army, and that would indicate that his intent was for the Army to meet them in East Texas. A later account 
had Houston sending orders to the East Texas volunteers to hurry and meet the army because it had, quote, changed its course to Harrisburg, close quote. Well, Houston's intentions make for great debate among Texas historians, and I hope the debate continues because we don't want to run out of things to talk about at these Texas history conferences. I will say that Houston, of course, claims his intention to meet Santa Ana all along, while his detractors, almost to a man, questioned his courage in every single decision he made. But the result is the same. The Army took the right fork toward its destiny. My own personal feeling really is that Sam Houston was a very skilled politician, and there's no doubt about that. And he no doubt had a great feel for the spirit of his troops. I really don't think he seriously thought he could convince that army to turn left. I think he was going right, and I just think it's he would have been the only guy to take that left fork. Uh, I just I think the open issue is when he made that decision. All right, one more side story about this march. Marching from the Brazos River, the army had pressed two oxen into service, and the oxen had belonged to a lady named Pamela Mann, who was fleeing Washington on the Brazos as part of the runaway scrape, which will be another episode. Miss Mann operated an inn at Washington on the Brazos, and she agreed to loan Sam Houston and the army her oxen if he was taking the Nacogdoches Road but she did not want to loan him the oxen if he was going to Harrisburg. Well, Houston told her that he was going down the Nacogdoches Road. Now, of course, the fork was way up ahead, so he neglected to tell her exactly how far he was going down the Nacogdoches Road. But down the Nacogdoches Road he went with Miss Mann's oxen. Well, Miss Mann figured out that the Army had turned right toward Harrisburg, so she, she did what any good Texas woman would do. She chased him down. She caught up when the army was well down the road to Harrisburg. She immediately cussed General Houston as a liar and demanded her oxen back. Houston said, ma'am, we can't give you the oxen back. We're using them to pull our cannons. So Miss Mann pulled out her own knife, cut the oxen off the Texian army wagons, and took them home. Well, Miss Mann must have been fairly tough because nobody said a word while she did this. The wagon master later said that he would go back and get the oxen. And uh, Houston warned him that maybe that wasn't the best idea, and he he wasn't phased, so off he went. Well, he returned to the Army empty-handed, and not only that, his shirt was torn to pieces. So once again, we learn, you do not mess with Texas women. Anyway, the Army continued its march towards Santa Ana. In the meantime, Santa Ana had burned the town of Harrisburg and the town of New Washington in his pursuit of Burnett and the provisional Texas government. Burnett had escaped the Mexican army on a boat into Galveston Bay literally seconds before being captured, and Santa Ana was forced to turn his attention to Lynchburg, where he hoped to meet Sam Houston and the Texas Army. Another very important event occurred during this time. From earlier episodes and from Texas history, you'll recall the name Deef Smith. Deef Smith was a famous Texian scout, and he was riding with Henry Carnes, another famous Texian scout, and one other guy, west of Harrisburg on the road to the Brazos doing some scouting. Now, that's a road that would have headed west from Houston. The road to San Felipe from Houston uh, was is actually now West Dallas and the road called San Felipe, so it still exists. While they were riding out, they captured three Mexican horsemen, two of which were carrying mail for Santa Ana. One of the messengers even had deerskin bags that had belonged to William Barrett Travis. So they had obviously gotten them from the Alamo. Now, from the documents that were captured 
in this mail, uh, Houston learned that Santa Ana really didn't have a good idea of where the Texas Army was. They were a lot closer to Santa Ana than Santa Ana realized. And Santa Ana also didn't realize how many men that Houston had. Uh, He also learned that Santa Ana's force was fairly small, and most importantly, that Santa Ana was personally leading him. So Houston and the Army continued their march toward Lynchburg and began crossing Buffalo Bayou on April 19th. He left the baggage of the Army back in Harrisburg, which of course had been burned out, uh, under a camp guard, and the Army marched to Lynchburg to find that they were the first ones there. So Houston set up his camp on an oak in an oak grove on Buffalo Bayou. Santa Ana, meanwhile, finished burning and looting the town of New Washington and proceeded toward Lynch's Ferry to try and cut off the Texian army. Early on April 20th, before the Texians had even finished their breakfast, the alarm was sounded that Santa Ana was heading up the road from New Washington to Lynchburg. So the men gulped down what breakfast they could and they got ready. Now, one last story in case you don't by now believe that the Texian army was ready to fight on April 20th. Despite the fact that the Mexican army was coming up the road, the men discovered that most of their rifle loads were wet. I mean, they hadn't fired these guns in a couple of weeks, so they began firing them across the bayou so they could reload their guns with dry powder, making an incredible noise, of course. Houston yelled for them to stop, but the firing kept on. Some accounts say over 400 Rifles were fired across the bayou. Houston finally was fed up. He drew his sword and he threatened to run through the next man that fired a gun. Well, that order was answered with dozens more rounds of muskets being fired. So Houston just gave up and began pre- preparing for the battle that was that would come quickly. The next time the men fired those weapons would be in the last great battle for Texian independence. Well, now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There. I want to tell you about a few of the places that we talked about in the episode and how to see them. Burnham's Ferry was located in what is now Fayette County near the town of Weimer. If you get on Highway 90 out of Weimer and go east about a mile, maybe a mile and a half to County Road 201, uh, turn north and there's a marker up there about the intersection of County Road 201 and County Road 204. And to the best of my recollection, it's about three miles up the road. Um, somebody tweet the show with a correction if that's not exactly right. Beeson's Crossing on the Colorado was located in what is now called Beeson's Park, where Highway 90 crosses the Colorado River in the town of Columbus. And the street, when it's in Columbus, Highway 90 is called Walnut Street. The Bernardo Plantation was located just south of present-day Hempstead, Texas, on Farm Road 1887. So if you're in downtown Hempstead, go south on Farm Road 1887, and just past Bosque Road, on your right, is a marker that commemorates the location of Gross's Ferry. And as I talked about earlier, the Brazos River changes location all the time, uh, so it's a moving target. But the marker is there on the side of FM 1887. Now, if you're in Houston, take a ride down Lawndale Avenue to the entrance of the Lyondale Sitco Refinery in Pasadena, and you'll see a marker that commemorates the Texan Army crossing Buffalo Bayou. Now, the bayou is north of that marker, a little over half a mile, and that's about where they cross. Now, you got to remember that nowadays it's the Houston Ship Channel, so it looked a lot different back in 1836, uh, but that's about the spot where they crossed. Now, just west of Tomball, Texas, on FM 2920, 
is a park called New Kentucky Park, and that is the old Abraham Roberts home site. And on this property, the New Kentucky Park is the spot where the Texian army turned south toward Harrisburg and their destiny. And there's a historical marker marking that New Kentucky, the Abraham Roberts home site. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas, and we're approaching the 180th anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto next week, so stay tuned for a bonus episode that you longtime listeners know is bound to come. And folks, I'm proud to let you know that literally thousands of people are listening to this podcast. I hope you'll like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas. You can also follow Wise About Texas on Instagram, The show's been written up in multiple publications already, and I'm getting lots of speaking opportunities to help spread the message of Texas history. You can help by sharing the show with a friend or leaving a review on iTunes. If you have a request for a speaking gig to talk about some stories of Texas history, I'm happy to accommodate if my schedule allows, so send me a message on Twitter or on the show's Facebook page, or you can email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. One more thing, I've had several generous requests to support the show financially, and I plan on finding a platform for that too. So stay tuned for that opportunity. I really appreciate you listening. God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.